Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org, Consequence of Sound, and the Consequence Podcast Network. Thank you so much for checking out this episode and making your way here. If you're not already, I do hope you hit the subscribe button. We bring out uh, brand new interviews three times a week, one every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So if you're a big music nerd like we are, it's a great way to keep up with all of your favorite artists, discover some new ones, and know what's happening in the music world. Of course, you can find us at any of the major podcast hotspots like iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, where you can also find the video version of this interview right here, as well as Acast. I'm Kyle Meredith, and today I'm talking with the Cranberries. Got Noel and Ferg. We sat down over Zoom to talk about the 25th anniversary of No Need to Argue. Now, the album actually celebrated 25 years just last year, but the reissue finally making its way out. And they'll tell us right at the beginning about uh, why why the disruption in the uh, the timeline, which you can probably guess exactly what that is. But we do discuss the uh, the reissue. Uh, the uh, the demos and live tracks that are on it, including a song they had originally done for MTV Unplugged, and but never actually recorded. That finally makes its way out on this collection right here. Uh, the two also discuss building on the first LP success, working out all of these songs on tour. We hear about the progression of their massive single, Zombie, which uh, kind of taught them to be a heavier band, as well as the lasting impact of that song. You know, it's that's one of the few songs that has over a billion views on YouTube. So we want to hear about what it means in today's society, especially to new listeners who are just discovering the band. 
They'll also, uh, speaking of music videos, take us back to the uh, the one for Ridiculous Thoughts, which ha- which had a music video that they didn't like. Then they redid it, kind of Frankenstein it with some uh, some live stuff. It uh, it starred a very young Elijah Wood. We'll hear about that as well. I'll get into the guitar sound on uh, on some of the record. How they covered the Carpenters at that time for the I Wish I Was a Carpenter compilation. That also makes its way onto the deluxe edition here. They, they even tell us about uh, seeing Nick Cave in the studio while they were recording it. it. Ending up on the soundtracks to both Clueless and Empire Records, winning an MTV award, starting a riot in uh, Washington, D.C., a very funny and uh, mostly forgotten uh, CD-ROM extra that they put out in the 90s called Doors and Windows. Whatever happened to that famous sofa that appeared on their uh, first couple records? And what we can look forward to next, an upcoming documentary and whether or not we'll be seeing a 25th anniversary for the album To the Faithful Departed. Let's jump into this, discussing No Need to Argue. It's Kyle Meredith with the cranberries. Hey, hi, hey, hi. So uh, I, I guess I should ask, what, what was the holdup? Because we're not officially on the right timeline here, right? Yeah, um, it was supposed to be a bit earlier this year, but then the whole COVID thing affected the, the release and all that. Cause we, we kind of had it ready for, well, I suppose towards the end of last year, we, we were finishing off everything and it was, it was ready to go. You know, I think we were planning around summertime this year, but um, the old lockdown scenario and all that. Um, then it was due to release in September, and now it's put back to November, I believe. Yeah. Well, we're getting there, and that's the important thing. And it's such <laughs> yeah. a fun collection to listen to. I mean, so you've got the uh, the remastered record, and I, I want to bring up my notes here so I'm not missing anything here, but uh, uh, the B-sides, Away and I Don't Need, So Cold in Ireland from the original tapes. There's some demos, some live cuts on here. Uh, and one of the live cuts, I was going to ask about this too, because uh, it's an MTV Unplugged in New York, and uh, but it's only one. Has there been anything of keeping you guys from re- releasing that whole thing, or is it just like, that's the one we like? Well, that particular song was never on anything. We literally, I think we only ever played it that one time. We kind of wrote it a day or two before it, rehearsed it with the string section, played it, and then forgot about the song forever. So all the other tracks on there, obviously, you know, we played many, many times. So I, I don't really know. Farg and I spoke about this a week or ago uh, about, you know, how can we never recorded it or played it again? And it just seemed to get lost somewhere along the way. So this is really, as far as we know, I think the only actual recording of it. So we figured we might as well put it on something at some time. And uh, we did a kind of um, an acoustic album. uh, Was it about six, seven years ago, Farragut thing? So roughly, but that was kind of, yeah, was it? So, you know, that was kind of, I guess, a more modern version of that unplugged thing. And we released that and we kind of didn't really see the point of releasing the MTV one then because we kind of did our more modern up-to-date version of it as well but you never know you know what what happens with things down the road it's out there now thankfully uh, yeah. it's a lovely song and it fits in i mean of course it fits in a, a time and place in a picture here as we're painting with this record no need to argue which was um uh technically your guys uh sophomore album as the cranberries kind mm-hmm. of you know with with the history mm-hmm. the way it's laid out in the band names mm-hmm. and and lead singers and all of that stuff they say you got your whole life to write that first album. For a lot of bands, that means the second record, you're up against the wall and time. 
I never got the sense when I look back and I read the history of this record that it felt like that for you all. Was that the case? No, it wasn't because there was kind of two years between the albums. I know it, the, the release date of the first album was pushed back a bit. So that meant we kind of had more time to prepare the second album. And we were kind of, I suppose, on a high because the first album was doing well and we were touring a lot. But we'd uh, work out songs at Soundcheck and, you know, everything was flowing really well. Everyone was in creative spirits and it just kind of happened really easily. Didn't feel any pressure or anything like that. We were just... I suppose in our early 20s, we were really young and full of energy and, you know, just enjoying being on tour because we had, you know, toured a good bit before the success kind of kicked in, you know, and, and it was quite a slog. And then when, when we started getting successful, it was kind of, you know, a, a big buzz and everyone felt like we deserved it because we'd worked so hard previously to that, you know. And um, yeah, we spent maybe two years touring the first album and, and then you know, writing at sound checks and stuff, and everyone, Nolan Dolores would come in with ideas and everyone would kind of just pitch in and, and you know, we'd re- record, get the sound man to record s- some of the ideas we had. And then um, the magic shop sessions that are on this this uh, box set, that was in the middle of, of a tour. We had uh, maybe five or six days off in New York. Stephen Street was free at the time. He came over and we did those demos. So I think it was five songs we did. And uh, they sounded great. So we ended up using parts of those on the act- the actual album itself. It's interesting, especially hearing you guys talk about how, you know, a lot of these songs were road tested, that you were able to kind of mm. play them. When you put them in front of the crowds back then, were you still working on them? I mean, were, you know, the audience hearing those early versions of the songs that made this, were they hearing what ended up being sort of the final ideas or was it still a lot of tweaking that went along? Uh, it was a work in progress the whole time. There's, um, I heard when we were getting the stuff ready for the first album, a lot of live stuff started coming up that I hadn't heard before. And there's a really early version of, of Zombie. And um, it, I didn't actually realize how old Zombie was. So I heard this because it was one of our kind of earlier gigs. Um, but the lyrics are, are different. Now, the Zombie part is the same with the verses so you know there would be things like that that uh and we'd be kind of getting the feel from each other as well kind of bouncing like Farrah could do a push here so you know the band would react to that as time went on or you know Mike might add in something or so we all you know you would kind of kind of look at each other and go yeah that works this does it we had songs that we put into the set that were like a disaster I mean no never again that was a bad idea and we just forget about, you know, or kind of Frankenstein them up and use the verse later on for a chorus and another song and things like that. But I mean, in general, we used to love, you know, we get a new song and just put it in the set that night, even if we don't really know it properly. And some songs like that, like Zombie would have been a perfect example straight away. No one really knew the song, but people just went crazy the minute you started playing this. So by the time we went in to do the album, we were probably the tightest we kind of were before or after that, I think, because we had toured so much that we were able to just go through these tracks like really quickly. And we also were in with Stephen again and that awkwardness of getting to know a producer was gone. Um, so it just kind of, it all clicked very quickly. And uh, definitely that couple of years of touring made a massive difference to us. And we were more confident as well. There was a quote you reminded me of, like Tom Petty had said at one point about how, bands you know when they were coming up everything like you had 
like to even get in the studio, your songs had to be ready. They, you know, and so you would, you'd practice them out on the road uh, a lot, you know, to, mm. to kind of get it there. And, mm. and, and of course that's, that's not so much the, the, the case these days, but, but I, I like going back and finding that like, that was a thing because even once you started the tour for it, no need to argue. Once the album was out and you did the tour, you were already road testing the songs for the next record on top of that. Like when I look back at those set lists, like I just shot John Lennon was on there and Joe was on there. I mean, yeah. What an interesting way to write because you're sort of writing it in front of a live audience in that way. Or, or did it ever feel like that? Yeah. Yeah. We were just excited because, you know, we'd kind of spend maybe, three or four sound checks going through a new song idea and we'd be excited about it then because you know when something is new and fresh like that you're kind of going oh great can't wait to hear the reaction to this one like you know and the fact that you are playing it live you're way more focused during a gig than you would be in a rehearsal room you know you're, you're extra focused for a gig and the adrenaline is pumping and all that so you, you will play it differently in front of an audience so that really kind of uh, helped kind of fine tune things I think and hone, hone little bits, you know, you, you, you'd be, yeah, definitely more, more focused and more on age and kind of aware of everything. Hearing about how the zombie did go back that far though, like, of course, when you read the reviews at the time, every review back in 94 will talk about how it was a much heavier, there's a much heavier version of the Cranberries than the first record. It's a much darker version of the Cranberries. Mm -hmm. And I thought for the longest time, maybe that was a reaction to what was happening musically in the world post teen spirit or something, you know, but I don't know. I guess I don't get that sense in the, in that way. If, if it kind of traces a little bit back further than that, I mean, did it feel like it to you all? Because again, that seemed to be the critics thing, like darker, heavier. Did you all get that sense yourselves though? You know, having been the ones who wrote the songs? Um, well, that song is definitely, you know, it's obviously heavier than, but probably all the songs on this album. But if anyone had come to see us live, it was night and day. I mean, when we started, we tried to do what we did in the studio live and it did not translate at all. It was, you know, we used to kind of use a lot of effects and shoot a lot of reverbs and delays and then we'd be very dry and no distortion or anything live and it just always sounded very empty. And then it was around the time that Doris came with Zombie because, you know, we were kind of playing it a certain way and she was like, oh, it's got to be heavy. It's an angry song and suddenly, you know, Ferg's playing heavier, all enough bought a distortion pedal. And next of all, it was like, oh, we can be heavy and still have melody and not be like, you know, I think we kind of thought heavy means like heavy metal kind of thing. And then you did have the kind of the, the grunge thing starting to come along as well. And you definitely, you soak all that kind of stuff in as well. So I think the combination of all these things just kind of lined up to suddenly, you know, people were going to the gigs going, that's a, a good bit different album version. But in some places it was better even. You know, there's songs there that have kind of, I guess, you know, evolved over the years that like, I think like a song like Ridiculous Thoughts, the album version and the way we would have played it, particularly the last 10 years, they're night and day. It's a completely different song live. It's really heavy, way longer. You know, you do all these things that you can get away with live. Um, I think the album version suits a studio recording, but it just needed, you know, 
it needed to be taken to another level live. I, I'll, I'll hit on that track one more time too, because Zombie, that's a song that does carry on today. Uh, over a billion views on YouTube, as they say, yeah. that puts you in a, a small Amazing. group uh, of artists there. <laughs> What do, you, what do you, like, I know it's sort of a hard question to answer, but why do you think that is? Is it just that it's a catchy song? Because, because the, the flip side of this is she's talking about some very heavy politically, uh, you know, wartime things. What does that say today? Do you find that the song still speaks to today in that way? It seems to be, yeah, uh, even a younger generation has picked up on it because it's, it's, it's more of a song about the way humans treat each other, you know? That's the, the core of it. And I think... That still goes on in the world. That kind of those atrocities still happen today, you know, and people can relate to that. And you know, the, the, the song is catchy as well, but there's also that that meaning that's there. You know, it's like you know, what what are you thinking, acting this way? You know, treating people like this, and and you know, I think people can still relate to that. It's very relevant. To me, that's 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 sort of. I mean, that's the crux of a classic song of the greatest songs. It's you know, you can have a song very specific maybe like when Dylan, Dylan was singing about Hattie Carroll, you know, but that it, it's so specific, but it still will speak, you know, to the mm -hmm. next year and the next year and, and today mm -hmm. eventually. I find a song like Zombie for the exact same reasons for that you're saying right there to do that. But, but you know, I, I also would assume like as a songwriter, like you're, you're hoping for that. Yeah, like you don't really think of it. When you, you get a bit, you know, you might get a sequence together and you go, wow, that's, you can kind of tell sometimes this is a single and this is not a single, you know? And then for us, I guess many of our favorite songs were ones that were album tracks that didn't become singles. But I mean, you never think, we certainly didn't think, like, you know, Zombie and Linger and Dreams, like they were just songs we, we had. Particularly like Linger is the very first song we ever had. And I mean, we were really young, 18, 19. Your kids, you, you think, you don't think about Oh, what's going on next year? The mind, you know, 30 years time that people are still going to be singing it. But it is, you know, it's a great feeling and it's what every band or, you know, every artist would hope for. Um, you kind of have to pinch yourself sometimes that you hear it still on the radio, like played with all the other stuff that's on today. And it's just, it, it fits in still. And it's great. And I, I don't think for us, it'll ever really sink in properly. It's just a nice feeling to know that we weren't the only ones that liked what we were doing. You know, that there was a lot of other people that got it as well. It's always an interesting thing. Like musicians, maybe more than anyone else, like you, you do something great in your teens, as you said, and you're always going to be tied to something that you did in your mm. teens. You're always going to be repeating something that you did. Like, I don't think anybody else has that, you know, and, and thank God that the songs that you guys did in your teens are just amazing <laughs> songs because yeah. there have been other instances of that as well. So it's, you know, it's really fun. <laughs> One of my favorites, and you brought it up, it is another single on here, is Ridiculous Thoughts. Uh, I went back and for the first time, I kind of uh, sussed through the whole music video fiasco of that. Uh, that, you know, there was the original one that you guys weren't exactly happy with. So you, you sort of Frankensteined it with a, uh, with, with a live album. I saw the original cut for the first time during the research for this. And I got to say, well, just what a beautiful video, though. Um, cool video. Yeah, I'm sure it was different in context at that point, but but what was it you guys didn't like about it? Because it's it is it's such beautiful pictures that kind of go on through the entire thing. Yeah, um, it works with the live bits mixed in. I think you know with both, it's good. I, I think um, it was Dolores Maine that wasn't happy initially un until we did the live bits, cut in with it, and then she kind of you know because I, I think we had been playing that song in the set a lot, and and it sounded a lot different live. 
and felt a lot different playing it live. Always, uh, you know, I, I, as the song evolved over the years, it, it got heavier and heavier. And I think she wanted to try and capture some of that live energy in the video. And with uh, baby Elijah Wood there, that's uh... yeah, I know, yeah, it's crazy. I I forgot forgot about that. My daughter yeah. was watching um, Lord of the Rings, and I said, "Oh my God, he, he's in one of our videos." And then I showed her the video, and she said, "Jesus." <laughs> that's fun and I'll, I'll, I'll hit quickly with the other single too because i can't be with you you know and and it's video what stood out with me is i thought man back in the 90s there was so much angel iconography in music videos <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like if you were going to have a music video if you're going to have yeah. multiple videos at some point you're going to have a beat up angel in, in your yeah. video rem springs yeah. to mind there as well and nirvana sure I think the um, collective soul, like one of theirs, that like there was just it was like why why this isn't really a, a specific question. I'm just like why was there so many angels in music videos in the '90s? It was an MTV thing, I bet you. These all directors are watching each other, you know. You know, we get in, inspired. <laughs> um, Noel, I'll bring up one of the uh, the guitar moments on this record. That um, again, a song I've heard a million times, but I started thinking about it in different lights um, the other night, and it's Yeats Grave. And I was, I was thinking, what, is that Led Zeppelin's no quarter guitar sound? Like, was that, was that the same thing? <laughs> I think it was, uh, I, I got a, a Vox 12 string from the 60s. I had bought it recently around that time. And uh, as you do with any piece of gear, we got to find a place for that in the album. <laughs> and then, you know, these things are meant to be. And um, I was like, Mart, who was our guitar tech forever he used to go out and find these things and come back and i was like get it i think we probably tried that guitar on every song but this is the only one it actually worked on <laughs> so <laughs> so that's the truth of that yeah, yeah. it's a it, it it works it did work it worked it's a cool sound it's a cool yeah. sound for that yeah one. i know it would work yeah. somewhere yeah, yeah. You know, we were just mentioning cool things in the 90s, how the Zeitgeist, uh, and, and one of the things that makes this uh, album is a cover. And, and it was the moment when the Carpenters became, it was very fashionable to, to like the Carpenters. For good reason, by the way. I, I like the Carpenters too, but you guys did. You covered uh, Close to You. And, mm -hmm. and I guess that was for the, um, the, the Carpenters covers compilation. That, that kind if of I was a Carpenter, yeah. 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 Again, was that something you all were swept up in or was that something sort of genuine like, man, we do like, like a, a few years no. later, it would be everyone like Johnny Cash, you know, it was kind of one of those things. Yeah. No, we all knew the Carpenters. We all knew that song because it was all over the radio when we were kids, like, and then uh, the request came in, this, some, someone from the, from the rec company or management or something said, um, there's a Carpenters tribute album, which they'd like you to play in it. And then we said, well, it, is close to you available? You know, we didn't think it would be. And it was like, yeah. And so, oh, okay, we'll do it then. Great. Because that was kind of really the only song we knew, I think, at the time. And Maybe one that, or two others. Was that just a quick session? Was that one of those things where you could kind of mm. kind of jump in for a day and do it? Yeah, yeah. we did it. it in London. Townhouse. It? Yeah, with yeah. Stephen. I think he had a day off and we had like a day off. And it was very quick. We of... did a rehearsal a day before, I think, mm. somewhere. Because I remember Nick I Cave think we was did there. It. Did we do it in Townhouse as well, no? The rehearsal? No, I don't think so. No. Somewhere else, some kind of rehearsal yeah. space. Because I remember seeing Nick Cave there and going, oh my God, yeah. here's Nick Cave. <laughs> it's always those moments. Yeah. Well, like, we love hearing about those moments. Who else is in the studio with you guys when you're doing yeah. these things? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and a friend of mine uh, 
it's gonna be a weird story. Walk in on Bob Seeger in the bathroom once accidentally not knowing he was in the, anyway, that's mm. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> let's bring it up. Uh, as far as pop culture goes, to uh, another one of the B sides away that's on this compilation that would make it into Clueless, and and again around that time, you know, it was a different song, it was Liar from the the earlier sessions that was on Empire Records. But this was, I mean, did you guys kind of feel like you were in a peak pop culture moment as a band at this time too? I mean, because you're looking, Empire wasn't a big movie then, but it has became a big mm. movie. But Clueless was enormous. Yeah. You don't, again, it's you're living in the middle of it. So you don't really, you know, you kind of get these kind of things come in. Can we use your song and this and that and everything? And we were like, yeah, sure. You know, and kind of, um, it. I guess in many ways, look, that's always been the case. You don't, these are kind of things you realize afterwards, like many, many years afterwards. Like I've seen my kids watching Clueless and, you know, that kind of thing now. And you think that's just insane. That's something that you know, would have been our generation. Um, so it's cool that we get to be part of that whole kind of 90s pop culture. And um, But we definitely didn't realize it at the time. We were just having too much fun, I think, kind of enjoying the whole ride of it. Because we, I think we were more surprised than anybody at how big the band had become. And I know you don't always get the moments to celebrate because they do. They sort of just come in these small mm. moments. But occasionally, I would think, like you would go on, uh, that year to win the um, the Song of the Year Awards, right? At the MTV Awards. Like, mm. is that one of those moments where you get to go, okay, we can take this in? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, really. It's, it's just, award ceremonies are funny things. Like, you know, they're just uh, a bit of fun. You know, a, a kind of a, a night to relax and have a few drinks and just enjoy yourself and celeb spot. You know, we were kind of going, oh, look, there's George Michael or, you know. Met the guys from U2 that night. It was, that was our first time meeting them, I think, and they were really nice. I think that's one of the things we would have assumed it would have already happened by then. Like, yeah, of course, Cranberries <laughs> yeah. met U2 by that point. Everyone <laughs> thinks that because we're Irish. Is that right. You, <laughs> live down the, you live down the street, don't you, from Bonong? <laughs> they they two yeah. more than we did, like, at the time, so we'd never seen them. They were always on the road. Yeah. Like in Louisville, if you live in Louisville, you've probably met my morning jackets and White Reaper yeah. and Houndmouth. You know, it's yeah. they're all around. <laughs> that it's, kind of thing, yeah. Bonnie yeah. Prince Billy's at the grocery store. He really is. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's over there. <laughs> it is one of those things. I wanted to ask uh, about one of the live shows really quickly too, because it's also became a bit infamous, and that's at uh, Washington D.C. This mm. would be the moment that the Cranberries started a riot. Fair to say? Crazy. Mm. But we didn't start it. The crowd started it. Yeah. <laughs> we were actually playing linger. I we're think. innocent. But they all start pushing through and we're like, Jesus, what's going on here? Calm down, people, calm down. Then our crew guys kind of came on the stage and said, lads, you got to go. Yeah. So we just yeah. jumped in the van. We're bemused by the whole thing. We're kind of looking out the window just going, what's, what's going on with these people? So, you know, I don't know. So you weren't on the grounds when it really, like, really went bad? Were you guys already gone by that point? Yeah, yeah I, I think, think we so. Were, yeah. It was just starting to... And, and you know, when you kind of get that kind of bad feeling in the air that something's not right here. And um, yeah, I think they didn't expect as many people mm. to show up and they didn't have enough security and people just started moving forward. And But we were kind of whipped out of there pretty quickly. And we were more worried then about where's our gear? Is it gone? Has it been sticking? Is, you know, but yeah, that was kind of definitely one of the more bizarre moments of, of the 90s, I think. It just goes to show that passion that people really do have for the cranberries, I think. And yeah. And also just wanting, you know, people that want to act crazy. There's an excuse, I guess, if you uh, yeah. if you want one. 
Um, the, the forgotten moment of this record, I, I do believe, and it's not, uh, I don't think it is, it's not a part of this, uh, this reissue, but I've seen it recently, uh, as I remembered it, is the Doors and Windows PC <laughs> exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, no, you've got to look on your yeah, face. I've got to ask about that. You have to go there. No, that was really the money. I mean, that was just, I had forgotten completely about that until this, they were sending us stuff to kind of look at and go through. And I, I just, we would never have made it as actors anyway, because it's so bad. <laughs> it was all, it was a lot of blue screen stuff. Mm-hmm. So we, we were, there was a guy there saying, okay, reach up and grab this. There would be a door there and this kind of stuff. And, you know, turn around and, and hand this to Noel. And so we were kind of on a stage with nothing, trying to imagine this big world around us. It was bizarre. <laughs> that, but, was a, you know, that was a really funny moment, a fun moment, I, I think, especially now to look back on, because so many artists, you were doing that. PCs and, and computer culture were, were, you know, such a new thing. And, and everybody was trying to figure out how to work that in, you know, to the music world. Yeah. And so you'd have all of these artists, yourself included, who would put, you know, CD extras, you know, the enhanced CD-ROM version of whatever to go along with it. And, and I got to tell you, almost none of them aged well, like almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not just us then. It's not just you guys. <laughs> but if anybody's watching, I, I do um, look it up. If you don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> doors and windows, look it up. It's a, it, it's a funny one. <laughs> this has got to be a question you guys have been asked a million times, and, I, and, I, and I'll close it out with this, I think, or, or one of these. But um, does the sofa still live? Was that eventually just burned? You know, where, where it's, what happened to it? Um, some metal band had it. Well, what happened was... Um, Supergrass, you know the band Supergrass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they had it in their first video for "I Should I Should Coco." What's what's the song? All right, all right, yeah. They're on the back of a truck, so it's in that. We spotted it in that, and we're like, oh look, because it was from a props place in London somewhere. And then we used it on the first and second album, and then some metal band rented it out and ended up burning it in some video. We heard this from Cali, the guy, who, the guy who was the art director for. He, he was the guy who got the couch. He was the art director for the first few albums. And uh, yeah, he was telling us that uh, some metal band burnt it and I think threw beer and whiskey in it and then burnt it or something mad like that. That's a shame. That's a, yeah, a, I know. A, an icon in itself. Uh, no. There was some award we got actually once, which was like a mini couch. And with, where the buttonholes would be at the back of the couch were, were two CDs. Uh, like, for no need to argue. It was, yeah. I, ha- I still have it. I must take a photo of them. Noel, last time I talked to you last year, uh, you know, of course, we were asking what future held for any of you all. And, and, I, and I, I will ask that again. Do you see you all playing together in any carnation, um, whether whatever it's called, it doesn't even matter? Or does the future of the Cranberries exist in, in, in these reissues? It's on these reissues, really, now. And like, there is the, the documentary that we've been working on and off with for a long time. I don't know if we spoke about this the last time, but we started, geez, is it five years ago, Ferg? Mm, we started yeah. the interviews for what was meant to be a documentary about the band up to the first album and kind of including that era. And then, you know, Dolores passed away. We had done a kind of a few interviews for it and kind of starting to get the ball rolling. And then we put everything on pause and then as we spoke about it over the past couple of years, it didn't make any sense to just do those first few years then. 
you know, to do the full, say, 30 years of the band. So and I think that's probably the next big thing that we're going to focus on. I think we would have been a bit further down the road with it only for COVID and everything kind of, you know, is on pause with that. But uh, I think we're looking forward to kind of starting that and it, it'll be fun to look back on the whole thing, good and bad, and kind of to get other people's point of view as well that were involved during the whole thing. So hopefully, you know, that's going to take a couple of years to do as well, uh, particularly now that none of us know what's going on in the world. But I think that's kind of what we'll focus on next because these two reissues took up a, a fair amount of time. And of course, we had the release of In The End as well, you know, in the past couple of years. So like there's always Cranberries related stuff kind of most weeks. There's something coming in involving us and then it and uh I think no matter how long we all live, that will probably be the case, you know, um, there's still an interest there. So I think for the future right now, that that's kind of where our focus is on once. And I, I'm guessing even at this point, it'll be next year, you know, kind of before we can really properly start to look at that again. That's what I wonder, like, are we going to be talking about an anniversary edition of the Faithful Departed come next year when it hits its 25th? I don't know. I, they, they weren't actually planning on doing one for Nona to argue, but then... The first one was really successful, and they kind of said, would you like to do one for No Need to Argue? So maybe they will. Who knows? Well, they're fun. Uh, I mean, as fans, of course, we'll eat this up all the time. <laughs> Especially it, if- That's good fun for us as well, going through all, all the older stuff. It kind of brings back all those memories and picking out good bits. And it's kind of exciting, kind of saying, you know, the fans will like this or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate all the music that you all done. Thank you so much for, you know, 30 years of music. And, and, and to both of you, thank you so much for, uh, you know, going down the rabbit hole with me today and talking about it all. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for being kind. And, uh, and take care to both of you. We'll see you around. All right. Mind yourself. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Now, I alluded to it in the, uh, in the interview here that uh, Noel and I caught up last year when they had just released uh, what would become their final record in the end. So I, I want to include that interview here as well. So we'll do part two, Kyle Meredith, with the Cranberries. Thank you for doing this. This is a, this is a big honor. Uh, I've been such a fan of you all, you all for, for the whole run. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a kind of mixed emotions on it, really. Yeah. I mean, in the end, that, 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 is, that, is, that is the actual title of it. It is a song on, on the record as well, but it, but it sums it up coming out April 26th. This record is so good. It's, it's one of the best things I think that the Cranberry's ever done, you know, uh, in that Thank remarks. You. Congratulations. I mean, I, I guess all the accolades or compliments that come along with this, it is. It, it all sort of has that dark lean to it, right? I mean, we're saying congratulations, but it's, it's with a tear. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird one because as someone said to me, we've been doing a promo tour for, I guess, a month or so now around Europe um, before we go to the States. And um, people are kind of saying you're out promoting the end, you know, <laughs> the end of you really is what you're doing uh, in many ways because it's just like for us right now and the last 12 months has just been so crazy that it just feels like it's the right thing to do now is to just kind of finish with this. We are looking at it in a kind of funny way in that we consider ourselves really lucky that we're able to do this album, you know, that we had enough there with Dolores that we can kind of go out on a high, if you want to say it that way, because I, I do think the album is really strong and I think it's a good way to finish. Um, but like it's it's kind of mixed emotions, as I say, because 
you wonder oh, in a year's time are you going to be like kind of sitting here kind of going I'd really love to play live again I'd love to do this again or that and it's really hard to tell um, it's just been such a kind of whirlwind year really from the 15th of January of last year when Dolores passed away to, to this very day you know the whole thing is, a, is a, it's almost a blur I wonder in, in a month or two's time when when it's all done and dusted, how I'll view this now. You know, you kind of wonder about that sometimes. You know, a lot of people have asked you, like, oh, would you would you put a different singer? And you've, you've shot that down. And, and I think to a mm. certain degree, I, I agree with that, too. But I did wonder about what you were saying there. Is like, is there that desire to want to play these songs live, like maybe even once for like one of those tribute shows yeah. where you get a bunch of vocalists or something like that? You know, it's yeah. There's definitely, look, I'd be lying if I said, no, I, I, you know, I don't want to hear them live because in many ways, the first time we played them was the last time we played them mm-hmm. um, because we played them to record them and, and we haven't played them since. So it's, you know, and you are constantly wondering, oh, I want to know what that would be like live and, you know, how we would have worked it and because you always kind of change things up a bit and so like look I'll never say never you know because you know so many bands over the years oh that's it you know when we're doing that it's never going to happen and then you know a year later right. they're on a stage somewhere together so uh, and you'll be ringing me up going you said you'd never do it you know? so so um, right now you, you know what it is it's I guess it's very raw and emotional still for the three of us um, even though a year and a bit has passed since Laura's passed away, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's only a few weeks. Mm-hmm. So, and it's hard to imagine yourself standing on a stage with somebody else in between the three of us. So, it, I don't know if time will change that. But right now, we feel that this is this is the kind of way to to bow out of this thing. Sure. Well, let's then jump into the actual album itself with, with In The End. So from what I gather, this sort of starts with the Something Else live shows, uh, when, yeah. when it all comes together. Now, playing those old songs, th- this album, in the end, really does have a lot of that classic feel to it for the first time in a while. And, and I, is does that have anything to do with it because you all were doing the Something Else tour, concentrating on the older um, songs? Well, the, I guess the thing I can be thankful for for the tour was that we were playing the older songs, but we, Doris and I had started going, it'd be great to play some new songs. <laughs> you know, we were kind of playing, I'm going, yeah, this is great and it's lovely that we've done these other versions and all that, but we hadn't kind of written together in a while and, and for the Something Else album, there's three new songs on that, but there's one co-write, which was the the one called The Glory is the name of it, and we really enjoyed doing that. And we kind of thought, you know, it'd be fun to kind of do some more of that because we hadn't done anything since... The last brand new album of all new tracks was back in 2012. So a lot of time had passed. So at the rehearsals for that tour, we got talking about that. Then the very, very first day of that tour, we we went to Poland. We were starting there and it was a day off when we got there. And with the kind of thought in my head that, you know, Lord and I had been talking about writing, I spent that whole day working in my hotel room on a track which is actually on the album. And I, I sent it to her later that night, said, look, I've been doing this all day. And, and that was really how it began. Sent her that track. She loved it. She started working on it. Um, the, it's called, on the album, it, the name of the, title of the track is uh, A Place I Know. So it kind of launched with that. Then we, we were on the tour and we were both tipping away kind of individually. And uh, when Doris kind of couldn't tour anymore because of her back problem, she went back to New York. 
I ended up in France and we were both, I was on my own there and Dolores was in New York on her own board and she kind of rang me and she said, look, would you be on for writing? Let's kind of to keep this thing going. So I said, yeah, I'd love to, you know, it would give me something to do as well and we can use the time off productively. So we didn't say anything to anyone. We just went off and started emailing each other ideas over and back for the following six months then. So that was June of 2017 up until December. So we'd been doing the co-writes, the doors had been tipping away on songs on our own over in New York. So it kind of, we started to build this catalogue of songs then. And the plan was that in um, 2018, we would kind of go in and, and start recording the, the album that you have today, this album. So what's so amazing about, to that point, is is these are, you know, in that sense, demo vocals. And, mm-hmm. and when I say that, it's like, holy cow, these are demo vocals? You know, this, I mean, yeah. that's... It just goes to show how amazing she was. I mean, those are... Yeah, I've been saying that to people. Like, you know, when I first kind of told people <laughs> we were doing this with these demo vocals, like, are you, you know, are you serious? Thinking a demo is, you know, kind of a throwaway thing. Um, but it's not unusual for us to use demo vocals. She was that good that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the quality, if she really felt something in a song, she gave it all and, and it's like not the first time she would have come in and kind of redone a vocal and gone oh yeah she preferred a demo let's let's use that and, and we've done that before so it, it was kind of you know when we went through all the songs we felt yeah there, there's enough here she's done enough like this is you know we can do this album there was a few that didn't make the album that they were demos as well but they just weren't up to scratch you know she would have kind of left out words or hummed a bit or just give me a bit of a chorus and not the, or a bit of a verse and nothing else. And so those ones, it's a pity because they had great potential, but they're, you know, they'll never be heard. So what these 11 tracks were the ones that were kind of more or less finished really in, this, in the demo shape. But what they needed was, you know, Mike and Ferg in particular, well, you need the rhythm, the Cranberries rhythm section to make it that whole song, you know, to make it a Cranberry song. Now, she had just come off uh, the, the Dark Project, that band, you know, which must, must have been invigorating in some way, as, as I kind of uh, see in the interviews. And I don't know, did you notice any of the influence from that making its way onto what she was doing with you? No, like, we had conversations about it because we'd, we did like to go off and, and kind of work with other people individually, uh, you know, outside the Cranberries as the years went on. Because we found that you may not be kind of coming back to the cranberries with kind of I wanted to go this direction now. With you know you wouldn't have that attitude, but but you subconsciously these things do sit in your mind and and influence you. And you know she said to me, oh I, I really like doing that. It was fun, but I want to go back to do this now because she our big thing was that she. She hated singing to program drums. That was, she said, there's no movement there. I don't like that. It's, you know, it's too weird. I, I need the more human flow of things where things speed up and slow down. As much as she used to kill us sometimes live because we would wander around in the temples slightly more than we probably should have. But in, in even saying that, she, you know, that's what she enjoyed. So, so she definitely, um, I think more than anything on this album, what I've noticed and, and when every time she kind of called was she kept saying, I've loads to say, I've had so much go on in my life in the last three or four years that I want to, you know, I want to get it out there. So you, I couldn't 
right quick enough to get the stuff to her for her to to sing on. She had tons to say, and that's why I guess a lot of the subject matter in these songs, it's about really kind of things coming to an end and finishing, and that you know was really her saying about that part of her life was gone now it was behind her and that she was moving on. I mean, you get that from the first single. One in the title alone, mm. I mean, All Over Now, which, as I understand, is a song um, that deals with domestic abuse. But mm. but obviously, that meaning means something for all of us. Did, did it change in that same way for you? Yeah, look, people will read a lot more into some of these songs than, than she ever meant to be. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, what she was really talking about is all these things in her life coming to an end and her moving on. But obviously, a lot of it is about when you talk about ending of things and then the ending of the band. It just <clears throat> people will kind of put it together in their own mind that that, that was it. But it, it was really the album was written as just another Cranberries album. Like this is the next Cranberries album. And we had always thought, you know, there'll be another one and another one and so on. So it was never meant to be that way. But there is no way you can kind of dodge that thing now where people will, they know it's the last album, they know the Lord has passed away so they're going to read far more into these lyrics than she would have intended but like, she liked that kind of thing as well, in fairness she uh, she used to get a kick out of it, like she she hated explaining what songs were about oh, yeah. to people, because she'd like to people take their version of it their interpretation but in that sense, it it is a bit of a shame because when you're de- you like she was writing about very personal things, but you know these are mm. big themes that that help out people in the end, you know. So to yeah. kind of be obscured a bit in that way, I mean that's that's that, that part's a bit of a shame, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is, but it's just it's you know unfortunately sure. it's something you know that we we kind of have to live with for for it's like I have sat there some nights wondering what she would have thought of this album now you know the yeah. finished version but you that's the kind of stuff that you can drive you mad you know you're kind of wondering how that would have what she would have done and would it still sound the same or whatever but it's just one of those things you kind of just have to you'll never know well let me look into one too deep here as something that I, I, I sort of had a little a mini mind blowing moment when I when I put the two together because mm. when you go back to the very first record and the very first track I still do she says the line I can't see the future and when you go to the very last song of your very last album it's followed by everything you wanted was nothing that you wanted in the end I mean it reads like a story the literal last words are the end you know and that's yeah that's I mean, I guess that's complete coincidence as we're talking here, but now I don't know another band where you can look at a catalog where it starts at a beginning of a story and ends at one in, in lyrically in, in such an interesting way. I mean, that's that's the stuff of myth-making right there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's like The whole thing has just been a kind of a series of weird kind of, you know, um, coincidences, really, in many ways, because she... Like like that song in the end, you know, we're there playing it on the last day and um, you're kind of going, oh God, this is so weird. Like we, this is our last day recording, our last day playing together as the Cranberries, you know, um, and we are listening to the lyrics of this song and you're going like, I mean, it couldn't, you, you couldn't make this stuff up really. And um, it was just bizarre kind of. And, and when we finished recording it that day, we kind of thought, yep, that's, that's the title of the album right there. You know, it kind of, it wrote itself, as they say. Beyond that, I'll, I'll also throw a big old compliment to Wake Me When It's Over. I mean, uh, 
it's a harder song. It, you know, it, it, it harkens back mm. to some of those heavier songs that you do and, and kind yeah. of stands out in that way on the record. Uh, where, I don't know, did that, did that come from anywhere specific? Well, that was, you know, it's a real kind of classic kind of, Del- it's one of Dolores' songs and it just, it has that kind of feeling of zombie to me. That's where, you know, that kind of softer verse with a big anthem kind of chorus, you know, and, um, uh, as far as I know, it'll be the next single as well. It'll be the second okay. single from the album because it kind of, when we heard it, we thought, yeah, that's that's got all the elements that you need. Because the surprising thing we found is that the first single came out and everybody was going, oh, that's not at all what we expected. We thought it was going to be like this kind of morbidly, maybe an acoustic track or a piano track or something, you know, really downbeat. And everybody was just really surprised that it was like this kind of big, rocky kind of uh drum intro kind of thing and all this so I think I like the idea that the next single is is down that vein as well of a big kind of rock song because it you know it it drives home the fact that this album was written just as another Cranberries album Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorites Uh, I mean it's one of my favorites right now of the year on top of that but uh, I'm a big fan uh, of it and so many on here you know, this does put it all to bed, but, uh, it, it, you know, there, there is the uh, the idea, and I've heard you all talk about it a little bit, that later on in the year, No Need to Argue will celebrate its 25th, and I was wondering if, if mm. there are plans for it to follow in the uh, everybody else's footsteps in the way that, uh, you know, the anniversary um, editions. Yeah, there'll be something, but it's kind of harder. It's, it's a bit of a hard one because with the first one, we had done so much stuff before that album came out that had never been released. It was actually in a small way easier to get bits because you had a lot of demo recordings and then live stuff and photos no one had ever seen before so you'd all that whereas when the second album came out we had been or you know we had the success of the first album and everything we were doing was released more or less straight away between radio sessions and gigs and so it's proving a bit more difficult to find kind of unheard things or, or kind of rarities now we are working on it but uh it's it may not have the, you know, the, the as kind of a large presence as the first one because we were really, really happy with that. It just, I thought it looked great and it had tons in there that nobody had ever heard, um, and a lot of stuff we'd even forgotten about. So it's there'll be something, but I don't think it'll be on the same size as the first one. Now I know that same year and and and. Uh, hopefully it's okay that I spent a second in 1994 here because, you know, here we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, which you all played the 25th anniversary yeah. of Woodstock that year. Uh, and, you know, hearing some of that, I went back and I think it was Dreams that got released on the uh, the actual soundtrack. But I don't, if you can if you can take go back there for a second, like, what do you remember about that gig? Because... It, that was it different than other shows, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, it was like it's funny because it's it's still to this day has stood out for each one of us. It was just I don't we had never played to a crowd that size, and it was just like when you looked out on that stage. I mean, as far as you could see into the horizon was just bodies everywhere, and they were all just going absolutely insane. And we were on early enough that day. We managed to we managed to avoid. Deep, kind of the rain came down and I got muddy and all messy afterwards so we were lucky in that sense that we were long gone but uh, it's always been one that we remembered because of the vastness of it we had never done anything like that and we were still 
kind of in many ways it was still early days for us even though we were having a lot of success you know you you play gigs you know every day but nothing like that um so it's i can kind of remember like remember like it was yesterday really what was the camaraderie? What, what, well, I guess you say, was there camaraderie with the bands? Were you all able to do that in that setting? No, it was too big because I remember there was a, the backstage area was literally a helicopter right away. <laughs> so that's how you got. Wow. You got kind of shipped from, it was a kind of a lake, right? I remember this, there was a lake and, um, and a kind of a lower, like a campsite, but it was actually, that was the backstage area. And then you got, you got a helicopter and you went over, you landed literally behind the stage and my brother, the bass player, Mike, he wouldn't get in the helicopter. He had a fear of it. So he ended up getting a, a boat, had to leave way before we did to get across the lake. But it was just so you kind of went there, you did that, you were on, and then they kind of wanted you out of there because it was there was too many bands, too many people around for everybody to be hanging around the place. So um, it was a really quick day in that sense. Yeah. Now I just heard that uh, the Green Day is actually releasing their set on a record store day. Do you all have the rights to that? Is that is that something you all could ever do? Is start releasing some live shows, especially one like that? Yeah, I'm sure we could. And um, because I, it was for this record store day, uh, we had an idea only about maybe a month ago, but we were way, way too late. So it's something we might do next year with a song from this album and one from an older album that slightly different versions that we have that we're looking at doing. So so next year, I think, is the plan to try and do something a bit special. I mean, that's good to know because even if, you know, the album cycle is kind of closing just knowing that there's still stuff that you know the fans can kind of yeah. kind of grab onto and everything like that so that's that's exciting you know that's in that yeah no it was such a pleasure talking to you uh this is a beautiful record it's a fantastic record in you know for how it had to happen uh it's um i love it i really do great thank you so much that that's great you know it's good to hear that because we've lived with it for like it's really i actually looked this morning for something else it was the 16th of April last year. It was the first day of recording. So it's almost a year since we started this. Oh, wow. And uh, it's it's a long time to live with an album. Uh, so it's great to kind of, because you're anxious about, oh, what would people make of it and everything. So when you start to get a bit of feedback back from people, it's fantastic. And you know you've done the right thing then. Well, I'm so glad that we have this music, uh, that, that that you were far enough along that we could get this music. Uh, it's um, yeah. very fortunate. It was a pleasure Thank talking you. to you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Take Touch care. Talk soon. Bye. 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 And my thanks, Noel Ferg, once again. The latest reissue is No Need to Argue, and you can find the uh, the video version of this one on YouTube as well. Thanks to you for checking out this episode and this series. Before you get out, if you're not already, man, you made it this far. I really do hope you hit that subscribe button. Again, uh, wherever you like to get your podcast from, that includes iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and YouTube. After that, head to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern, an hour full of song premieres and music news, anniversary spins, and bonus interviews. Again, that's WFPK.org, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. Consequence of Sound has your music and film news. I'm also on the social media spots, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of them at Kyle Meredith. Please do follow and like along there as well. That does it for another edition. Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network.
I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at wfpk.org, from Louisville Public Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.